Welcome, ravenous readers and culture consumers to Bohemian Geek Studies. The place where nerdy knights gather together to stress-bake ourselves all the cakes and share our insatiable thirst for intellectual discussions about our favorite books, shows, and movies. My name is Sarah O'Connor, queen of those queries, lady of that literature, and defender of those droids. Pew pew! And I am Will Lee, grammarian inquisitor, lord charcuterie, and keeper of lengthy records. And this is Flo, ambassador from Naboo, Chudley Cannon's aficionado, and manager of mischief. Now, as a friendly disclaimer, each episode of BGS is meant to be enjoyed by everyone, but we encourage you to listen to the episode first without younglings present to make sure that it's right for your whole family. Last week, we explored Matilda's hidden powers away from prying eyes and off-school grounds as Matilda performed the second miracle in Chapter 15 and followed her teacher towards Miss Honey's cottage in Chapter 16. This week, we're exploring the theme Secret Lessons as we discuss some of the secret truths of Jennifer Honey's life, and we'll also shed a light on some of the happier truths from teachers who have kindly shared some real-life stories with us. In this episode, we'll be looking at this theme by looking at some key portions of Miss Honey's cottage we haven't explored yet, as well as diving into Chapter 17, Miss Honey's story, and Chapter 18, The Names. So, without further ado, let's get into a quick summary of chapters before taking a detailed dorky dive more deeply into that delicious text. Kicking off our short summary of chapters, as a friendly reminder, last episode we explored the first part of Miss Honey's Cottage, focusing on the conversation Matilda and Miss Honey shared on how to identify, study, and develop Matilda's powers. But Matilda isn't the only one with a powerful secret. So this week, we're looking at the second portion of the chapter, where we get a rather intimate and unique perspective into young Jennifer Honey's life with Matilda acting as an avatar for the reader to realize that teachers, or at least Jennifer Honey, has a vastly different life circumstance than Matilda does. And because Doll takes care to highlight the fairy tale whimsical cottage, we are particularly primed to not be surprised to learn that there is a secret evil afoot. Who could it be? I wonder. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. So in chapter 17, Matilda and we the reader le- learn Miss Honey's story of a child who lost their mother at only two years old, who had a domineering and abusive aunt and a father who was hardly ever around, and maybe uh, was an inattentive father. And in the darkest twist, the problem of his inattentiveness resolves itself through his mysterious death, a presumed suicide mere years later, causing the abusive behaviors to worsen when the nefarious aunt becomes her legal guardian. Fortunately, Miss Honey hatched a plan of escape, despite being manipulated to even sign away her own salary when she became a teacher, a salary that isn't that much in the first place Mm-mm. and that but that plan worked and allowed her to get her own home away from her aunt and free from abuse and showing matilda the herodom and bravery of leaving a bad abusive situation finally in short little chapter 18 entitled the names matilda mysteriously asks miss honey three important questions that give this young power wielder the three deathly hollow secret names she may use to bring aunt aggie down With those excellent summaries in mind, let's explore some of the most pertinent passages in these fantastic chapters. So to return to Miss Honey's cottage, I wanted us to return on kind of a really big theme that unites us, and that is the magical terrors and wonders of Miss Honey's cottage. So let's first talk about that magical Midsummer Night's Eve description of Miss Honey's Cottage. When Matilda first sees it in the chapter, Dahl takes particular care to draw comparisons to other whimsical, fantastical cottages of childhood tales, like an illustration in Brothers Grimm or Hans Christian Andersen. And to do that, Will, are you able to take us away on our first vocab moment of the episode, to recite and discuss the Dylan Thomas poem snippet from the poem entitled In Country Sleep that Dahl includes in this chapter for us. Yeah, absolutely. And 
this is, I, I think it's the only place where Dahl really block quotes something like so significantly. And I think it's, I think it's kind of telling that he does. And what he quotes is never, never my girl riding far and near in the land of the hearthstone tales and spelled asleep. Fear or believe that the wolf in the sheep white hood loping and bleating roughly and blithely shall leap. My dear, my dear out of a lair in the flocked leaves in the dew dipped year to eat your heart in the house in the rosy wood. And so I, frankly, and in full honesty and candor, really knew nothing about this poem before researching for this episode. Flo and Will, did you know anything about this poem, about Dylan Thomas, about doll making little poetic little drops? Not a I lot. Nothing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know, yeah. I, I know Dylan Thomas for his like more famous works, right? Um, but not not this one. And it's but this really inspired me on this read or on this read to learn a lot more about this poem, which is kind of cool. Why don't Why don't I kind of lay out my research, mm-hmm. Will, and then you can flesh out a little bit that maybe needs to be fleshed out a little bit more, and then I'll join mm-hmm. Flo in ooing and awing over that knowledge before we close out this vocab moment. I'm super good at that. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So now that we understand our roles, I did a little bit of research and read uh, a paper entitled, quote, more than a lullaby, Dylan Thomas's attitude towards death in the poem In Country Sleep, which seemed to be the most timely and thought out piece. Although like many important poems, sometimes they have different interpretations. And frankly, we can't ask the poet and the poet himself, apparently, at least with respect to one of the characters in this particular poem, had an involving interpretation regarding one of the quote unquote characters. Involving is a good word for it. Yeah. I call it a retcon. Yeah. That's right. That's right. (laughs) This is very good flow. And Colleen actually, in our Star Wars episodes, taught us what a retcon is. Perfect. As to this episode, the poem In Country Sleep is part of actually a cluster of poems dealing with the destruction of Earth in the Atomic Era. And in spite of being the result of a more mature vision of the world and of a more developed concept of poetry, The poem is, quote, not a simple one, since it gives room to several different interpretations. The poem the poet addresses in this poem, he addresses his daughter and warns her about the coming of a thief. And that thief is whom I'm saying Thomas gave an evolving, revolving definition for. Exactly. And shows the daughter the importance of maintaining faith in a world full of risks and uncertainties. The poem suggests this address of a father to his daughter in the middle of the night in a time of menace and fear, like cue Jabberwocky, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But more than a poem dealing with fatherhood, In Country Sleep presents a vision of the world surrounded by terrors and menaces of death, a vision of the individual lost between imagery and real dangers. There are also religious elements, sexuality, death, among other things. And this is really just a short little snippet taste of the poem in its entirety. Frankly, it's mm-hmm. if you take the poem in its entirety, it's longer than the names chapter in Matilda. Yeah, that's right. Yes, it is. Yeah. And I think that's a great summary. And I, I like I said earlier, researching this poem now shows me how much Roald Dahl thought about it when he put into it and it gives me a much deeper appreciation for it and i don't know that i've seen any analysis of what doll was thinking about when he put this in there but so so this is it folks fresh off the so press. this is my take. it's happening this is just it's like, happening right now <laughs> this is just my like my off-the-cuff take but so like if you think about um how this is a poem about the destruction of earth in the atomic era and like the the perils of technology right yeah that, like tv that goes Right, exactly, like TV. So that falls right into the themes that Dahl is talking about in this book. And the the poem kind of plays off this older trope of poems, like the pastoral poem that you got from like the romantic poets like Wordsworth. And what you have now is Dylan Thomas kind of playing with it and saying and talking about uh, how technology and this pastoral home in the wood play into his his ideas of faith. And really, the the thief is 
open to his to interpretation. Like you said, Sarah, he talks about how he talked about the faith being his wife, alcohol, fame. And he said, the thief is anything that robs you of your faith or your reason for being. Yes. And I thought it was really important that Dahl put it in this chapter because with Miss Honey's cottage, Dahl had a cottage of his own where he did all of his writing. And so my read of this is that Miss Honey is a little bit like Dahl's muse, Mm. um, his faith in his own ability to write. And it's his kind of like putting his kind of existential dread of like his abilities and his his writing abilities in this cottage in the woods where he wants to warn it of things like um, that might destroy the imagination like TV. Yeah. So that's my read of it. I think it's pretty cool if that's what Dahl really meant. Regardless, it's really wild that he puts this in Tilda, which is, you know, quote unquote, a kid's book. I certainly think that that's a, f- a fair read. And I'm I'm failing my memory right now. So maybe maybe you know this, Will, and, and maybe we could look this up or what have you. But mm-hmm. I feel as though the poem's publication do you remember temporally when yeah, that was 1947 right after world war ii yeah so this is this is all very again pertinent conversation front of mind right. and i just i wish we could understand she said dripping with sarcasm what it meant to look to our teachers in times of trouble as our heroes and as our repositories for imaginative thinking and a willingness to persevere despite dangers in the woods known and unknown if only Mm. we knew holy man that'd be nice i just is this my time to ooh and ah yeah yeah so flo what what's your take on this uh i have not much of a take besides the fact that man y'all are smart i'm over (laughs) here like wearing my ravenclaw shirt but y'all are bringing it um I just think like it's Matilda who says this, right? Mm-hmm. So, so Miss Honey actually recites the poem. Yes, that's right. As she's as why don't we actually jump flow? I want you to hit us up with a key quote I have highlighted for you. Perfect. It goes like this: "Quote Matilda hung back. She was a bit frightened of this place now." It seemed so unreal and remote and fantastic and so totally away from this earth. It was like an illustration in Grimm or Hans Andersen. It was the house where the poor woodcutter lived with Hansel and Gretel and where Red Riding Hood's grandmother lived. And it was also the house of the seven dwarves and the three bears and all the rest of them. It was straight out of a fairy tale. And so like to to answer your question, Flo, they're at the precipice of doing something that, as we talked about in just last episode, is is pretty much kind of forbidden. Like, teachers don't just go, hey, little kiddo, come to my mm-hmm. idyllic cottage and let me welcome you to the harsh realities of poverty and emotional and physical coercion. That's normally not how things go unless you're in a fairy tale. I mean, okay, but if I'm, like, walking anywhere and somebody looks at me and says to eat your heart in the house in the rosy wood. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. It's I'm peacing out. Like, I'm running. Like, yeah. what is up with that? I mean, it, it, it <laughs> I'd be like, sorry, Miss Honey, I've got chores. See you later. I mean, it is funny, right? Because in the text, they're like, oh, it's musical. It's magical and like rapturous. And you read the words and you're like, huh? Yeah, <laughs> no, it's scary. It's just it's straight It's a little scary. dark, yeah. Well, it's more than a little dark. Try and look up a rendition of Midsummer's Night's Dream because yeah. it's very the dangers of magic, the dangers of Matilda's hidden power, the dangers of a young, curious mind who is about to broach a what Dahl even says, like an uncomfortable, uncomfortable topics. Mm-hmm. It's it's scary, these real world things. And I think it's an interesting way that Dahl kind of buffers this this reality between what is a hidden nightmare in in fiction mm-hmm. and actual dangers and fears in nonfiction. And it's 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 in one chapter and frankly the span of these three chapters together, which is why we've lumped them together, this like breaking of reality into a magical moment of Matilda going, okay, this is really explicative. 
-hmm. Let me be my mentor's fairy godmother, which is a topic we're going to talk about at the close of the episode, whether or not that's a fair, (laughs) a fair ask for (laughs) Miss Honey to be making of Matilda. But any any other thoughts on this before I do a little dorky dive into the topic, an old speech I used to give called Mother Goose Good or Just Quacked, because it all pertains to this topic. Anything further from you two? Mm. So the thing I just thought of, um, inspired by what you just said about buffering, um, this is very much buffering. You're exactly right. And um, if you if we have any anthropologists or philosophy majors listening, um, I think the right term for that is liminal, ooh, right? Ooh. Because yeah, more vocab, right? I'm just saying, y'all keep making me look bad. Huh? <laughs> I'm gonna go on. Y'all are just making me look bad with all this smart. Yeah, could you <laughs> could you drop us a spelling of that? Because I don't yeah, even yeah, know yeah, how absolutely. to spell that, sir. Yeah. Th- so this is one of this is a cool cool ass word. Um, liminal. L i m i n a l. And basically, can I have the what, etymology, please? Yeah. Yeah, and it is it is a it is a noun. It is it is a state of being that represents the in between, right? And so your anthropologists, mm. your religious anthropologists, talk about this because rituals are like these liminal things that take you um, uh, from like it, it's like a coming of age, like a ritual um, that where you pass from one state of being childhood into another state of being adulthood so it's kind of like there's there's an awakening to it it's an in-between stage that's really important and so what you i'm having a liminal moment right now learning about liminal (laughs) (laughs) but no but 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 you were exactly right though when you're talking about talking about buffers right because that's exactly what the, the the idea of a liminal state is and that's what this is you know you're talking about um, a situation between the fictional and the non-fictional, the the real and the fantastical. Tilda going from ordinary and mundane to something completely extraordinary. Um, so it's th- that's very much what's going gotcha, on in these chapters. Gotcha, here. gotcha, gotcha. Well, dang. At least from a Brothers Grimm, Han Christian Andersen perspective, these kind of fairy tales and cautionary tales have have always kind of been in the back of my brain itching. Because on the one hand, they can provide really great moral lessons, the form of allegory, but they also are scary AF. Even, frankly, if you think of the long-term mental thought process, even the whitewashed versions, because like just, just for a little taste things like the little mermaid well in the real version girl was walking on glass and i don't mean cinderella's shoes she was bleeding all over the place snow white was 14 dudes just making out with comatose bays all over the place doesn't the little mermaid turn back into like sea foam she she spoiler no at the end spoiler (laughs) she dies y'all yeah she right and doesn't she become foam we'll say for the kids she she becomes sure. foam. yes oh. yes okay, she definitely sense, becomes the version i would foam. Know. yes <laughs> and and so like that's the point it, i guess that's kind of like the point that we keep dancing around and making the fact of the matter was at least when it comes to the brothers grim they are well known not because they are authors of these stories unlike hans anderson brothers grim collected all of these different folklores they they were i kid you not at least according to my research were librarians y'all they were librarians they had thought about doing law they thought about doing this that the other thing but ultimately they pokemon folklore storied and gathered them all together to act as an anthology and one of the like crazy things is that the brothers Grimm apparently insisted that everything that they collected and wrote down was verbatim. They didn't change a darn thing. That was their like selling point, right? Mm-hmm. You, and you want to gobble that up. You want to believe it to be true. Oh, guys, reality is stranger than fiction. There, it's it's like the classic weirdest misdirection projection because, in fact, they did tinker with some of the stories. There is some like historical 
showing of that actually having happened. And so it's this very bittersweet thing of like those who were trying to tell the best story couldn't even keep their straight. <sighs> so that's my little brother's grim vocab within a vocab within a vocab. Any anything else on some of these dark daddies of folklore <laughs> storytelling and i'm just reading the wikipedia right now and oh, the little no. mermaid and oh, my no. mind is blown <laughs> it, it's been a while but her story is particularly sad yeah uh yeah dude yeah. this is intense listeners I yeah. recommend the Wikipedia. <laughs> Not, right, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll just um, say if you want to have a Miss Honey's cottage storytelling adventure with the Little mm -hmm. Mermaid, you totally can in your own time on yeah. Google. <laughs> the only thing that I was going to add was going back to what I talked about, like the liminal stuff and what you're talking about, like the scary yes. stuff. The other important thing that's really uh, that's really kind of characteristic of the liminal space is that it is dangerous. Those spaces are very dangerous, and you need a guide. There are always these guides, like spirit guides that you read about who, who are who are there, whether they're um, somebody who's experienced it before or a teacher like uh, like Virgil from like in Virgil and Dante in the in Dante's Inferno or stuff like that. You, you need a guide to traverse that space. And so you see very much see that here, too, which is kind of, which is kind of cool. When you brought up the liminal space, I immediately thought about the giver mm -hmm. and just like how Jonas is like totally in that liminal space of like going from being a kid to being an adult and he totally has that guide who's the yep. giver man yeah. i love that book listeners if you haven't read it read it again although uh, lois lowry was just in the the news because uh -oh. he gave an interview and he was like guys this is we're living the prequel to the giver in case you hadn't noticed like come on oh, oh, sorry anyway slide and slide. on that dark and foreboding note let us turn Sorry. to our next topic in this chapter, and this is historical perspective, because sometimes we need some HP, oh, and man. I don't mean Harry Potter. Aww. So <laughs> let's look at, I, I kind of wanted to, since we really diced apart that poem, Dahl also takes particular time in talking about this I think you pronounce it premise stove. So when we enter Miss Honey's cottage, Will, why don't you tell us what we see? Even even before we enter it and then as we enter it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you. so even before we've walked through this kind of like idyllic path in the woods that's kind of overgrown. And we we see that it's this little cottage. It doesn't even have a lock. It's pretty, it's really small. And in, in fact, the, the entrance kind of reminds us of uh, the Fellowship of the Rings, what, how Gandalf has to stoop to enter the, the, the door and enter, to enter Bag End. And Miss Honey has to stoop to enter. Uh, quotes, although she was not a tall woman, she had to stoop low to get through the doorway. Uh, Matilda went after her and found herself in what seemed to be a dark, narrow tunnel. Again, which is Alice in Wonderland, right? Yep, exactly. We're just in yeah. Wonderland right now. Yep, and once she's walked through that tunnel into where, where she can see a little more clearly Matilda sees that this is very sparse. There's barely anything in this, in this hut. There's kind of like a crate that she can sit on. There's no running water. There's barely any food. There's no, there's no heating system. And it really shows how Miss Honey doesn't have any material possessions. And how thrown toilet paper at them probably wouldn't like solve all their problems, right? Probably, probably not. <laughs> what? <laughs> Gonna need a little more than that. Yeah, so Dahl takes particular time to light this Primus Primus. If you know, let us know. Optimus Primus. I don't know. I have no clue. That's right. <laughs> if you know, listener, email us at bohemiangeekstudies at gmail.com. Primus Primus, who knows? I'm going to go with Primus because that's what I always say when I read yeah. it. So he takes a long time. He lights the stove in Miss Honey's kitchen. And so we're giving it the vocab treatment. Well, Miss Honey mm -hmm. explains through doll explains through her that the primus stove is a quote little camping stove that you fill with paraffin and you light it at the top and then you pump it to get pressure for the flame 
and I don't know. I didn't even. I don't even really know what paraffin is besides what they put on my feet when I get a pedicure. Yeah, I mean it's that stuff. <laughs> Which yeah. flow? Yeah, like I totally looked it up because I was like, okay, so then yeah, what's paraffin then? And it's yep. it's like a kerosene. It was a word that was really in high prevalence in the 1950s and has just kind of gone down in the night since like 2010. Because now it's used for those kind of things, as well as gluing hats onto father's heads if Matilda's dad gets out of line again. Got it. So, like, I could light it on fire on my feet? Listen here, Matilda. You you definitely could. (laughs) Actually, I'm lying. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that, yes, it would be flammable. And, like, right now, I don't know, Will, if you're thinking this, but, like, I used to do a touch of product liability when I was a lawyer. And I'm like, and this is why we have those warning signals. Like, do not light with fire. Do not. (laughs) That's right. Yes. But turning back to the stove. Oh, not my feet? (laughs) Oh, okay. Got it. (laughs) <laughs> not not the, the seat the primus stove turning back to the stove how does matilda handle the stove bathing situation of miss honey yeah and this is a good reminder that matilda is as as well read as she is and everything she's still used to like her creature comforts right her her two-story home that her father has bought and paid for with like like his his illicit cars uh, car trades um, and she has all this stuff at home, uh, running water, all the food that she ever wants. And she is just gobsmacked by the fact that Miss Honey has to bathe standing up with water that she's heated on this little stove. Um, and also the in learning that every poor person in England, at least until recently, probably recently being the 50s or 60s, um, would wash themselves that way. And and that they would have that they, that they wouldn't have a way to heat their water other than on top of a stove or in a fire and that finally the realization that miss honey herself is one of those impoverished people and this kind of all goes back to stuff that we've talked in previous episodes about world war ii again sarah kind of like you highlighted with the the poem at the beginning of this chapter being written in 1947 um the stuff that we talked about with Roald Dahl having been through the war having been through rationing um highlighting the stuff with butter and really this move from from this wartime as well as pre-war time kind of industrial revolution into this like post-war boom of 1950s and 60s right. baby boomers and technology and all this other stuff Yep. So it's really quite a stark difference. Yeah, Flo, how did your students perceive this? Because it's it's very hard for me to remember beyond beyond what I think is still my feeling of it, just abject horror that Miss Honey would be living in this circumstance. Did how do your kids I, I don't I don't know what would be in their minds hearing this kind of situation. Did they then ask about like frankly to like lighten the mood how you bathe or or those kind of things? Uh, Speaking of feet and bathing flow. No. Um my kids are all pretty wealthy. Um so this is like very out of their like realm of understanding, just like it was out of the realm of understanding of Matilda, frankly. So I think it's pretty typical for kids Mm -hmm. to only know what they know and not to look too, too much deeper. Um, So I I think they were pretty shocked. And I tried to like paint them a little picture beyond the words like this. She lives in one room. So like, let's picture one room and like, she doesn't really have furniture. So let's picture that now. Um, But it took a while to paint that for them. What helps is that at the beginning of the year, I always show them, um, it was a great Huffington Post article of how girls go to school around the world. Um, It's like 52 pictures of girls Mm, going to school and girls in school. And so we always talk about like similarities and differences of like girls in Iraq and girls in Argentina and girls in China and girls in Russia and, you know, girls in Ecuador, whatever. Um, And so they've learned, you know, that not everybody's life looks like their life looks, that not everybody is living in, you know, a $15 million mansion, that I don't live in a $15 million mansion. I have more than a Primus stove, mm -hmm. but uh, it's it's not what they're used to or what they would consider normal. So um, it it was nice to compare and contrast that and, and bring that experience full circle that not everybody lives the same way and everyone's just trying their best. Yeah. 
How about how about you, Will? Any reflections on you as a young reader, you as a now reader? So the thing that kind of crops up in my head now, and maybe this is something that we can ask our readers, is does Roald Dahl do a good job or a bad job um, not romanticizing mm. poverty? Yeah. Right. Because this is like it's 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 different for for than, than what most people are used to and at the same and and there's this and, and this being this kind of idyllic cottage in the woods there's there is this temptation to kind of romanticize this place and so the the question that i have in my mind now if i didn't have it back then i don't think i did um is 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 roald Dahl somehow romanticizing what miss honey does i don't think so i think he does a pretty decent job of kind of humanizing her and 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 kind of illustrating the realities of the situation but i think it's something worth talking about i think that's a super good point because i do think like this beautiful cottage in the woods it's so safe she doesn't even have to lock her door it's like that's not the reality for a lot of people who are living in poverty um for sure so mm-hmm. right yeah i mean I'll, I'll i'll say a few things spring to mind for me one on a very personal in the now perspective, one of the things I try to help people come to terms with, at least when it comes to my art business, is this quote unquote starving artist myth. And mm-hmm. I posit that this stems just historically way, way long back, but it really gets encapsulated in La uh Bohe, oh my goodness! Can someone please help me with the French right now? What are you trying? La B, La. I'm trying to say Bohemian, La but the, the La French. Is, thank you. Your resident French person is here to help you. Thank you. That's so right. it stems all the way back Perfect. to I think it was the the like famous play that just romanticizes the idea of artists and great minds languishing in poverty as if that's some kind of pinnacle of artistic Mm -hmm. creation environment. And so I think it's a fair question. I, I don't think like Thomas's poem, there's a definitive singular answer to it because he sets it out quite starkly but i think i will say that i think he does romanticize it a little bit because if we go to the text matilda talks about how much sweeter mm-hmm. the bread tastes with the margarine yeah. and and yes let us not take away the power of relishing in the sweetness of a gift that may have been hard to give. Because remember, how many slices of that bread and how many slaps of that margarine does Miss Honey have to give away? Not flipping mm-hmm, mm-hmm. much. So so True. I don't want to take away from the sweetness of that gift. And I think that's what Dahl was saying Matilda was tasting. But I I posit that that including that taste of marginalized <laughs> margarine was a romanticist was romanticized yeah no i hear you yeah i think that's i think that's a fair point totally any anything further on this before before we move into that miss honey's story chapter 17 oh, man, folks that's a good one. all right i'm excited we'll, we'll right. buckle up uh we have gone deep in this episode <laughs> Like I was just saying, people, including myself, including maybe you, dear listener, are looking for ways to escape. I know I'm enjoying Avatar and other kinds of things, balancing real life like must do's. And and one of the things I personally struggled with in mapping out the script for this episode is how to discuss the the dark reality of Miss Honey's living situation, which based on short insights from her contained in miss honey's story we are dealing with a situation likely rife in abuse and neglect which we already highlighted in the chapter's short summary recap not to mention a classic whodunit murder mystery caper i mean it's unequivocally clear that life has not been easy on miss honey 
even though, ding, 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 she used to live in a big house, highlighting perhaps the oxymoron of the poor little rich girl seen Mm. in both Matilda and herself, at least when we look back to a snapshot of who we have to presume Miss Honey was when she was younger, because we find out in this chapter and the next one, this little girl, Miss Honey, used to live in a big old house that wasn't filled with love. And who does that remind you of? But Matilda. And yep. and it's kind of weird that I, it's so weird to say this, but this this parallel of these two chapters, I never really saw that oxymoron mm-hmm. point until last night. What do you two think? think of this potential similarity that doll maybe intended to draw out or maybe is just just us being being geeks on a bohemian rapture <laughs> i had never made that connection that actually just blew my mind um yeah. oh <laughs> <laughs> i'm like I mean, yeah and i think it's a great connection to make and i definitely did not make it my my first time through right but thinking about it now you're absolutely right this is this is maybe Miss Honey kind of recognizing a, a kindred spirit and or recognizing something that happened to herself in, in Matilda, which, you know, is when you when you're talking about like the darker themes of it, pretty, pretty sad in, in a lot of ways. I don't know if we can make it a little happier by putting our tinfoil hats on and talking about like the yes, magic please. in this situation, right? Maybe she's yeah. um, thinking about how she can help this girl like develop her her magic and her power in a way that she was never able to, which also goes to some themes about like how, how teachers can see themselves in, in, in their students and try to help them develop in ways they, that they never did themselves. I mean, I don't know, like Lupin and Harry, for example, or mm-hmm. something like that, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. Anything, anything further from you Flo? No, I mean, I think that's a really, really good point. I definitely see myself sometimes in my female students, particularly, um, because I was a pretty, like, shy and reserved kid who, like, didn't want to make waves. And so now I, like, really teach my girls, like, no, like, you need to stand up for yourself. Say, like, that's not okay. You can't treat me like that. Again, four square. Huge thing. The boys Mm, will, like, play easy against the girls, and it'll hurt their feelings. And so I've been training my girls to say, like, do not play like that. I don't like it. Treat me like everybody else. <laughs> so, so yeah, yep. I, I feel that. I, I think you're right. I think Miss Honey does see a bit of herself in Matilda. But I also think that maybe in a way, like Matilda kind of sees a situation that is worse than hers because in later chapters, she like, we kind of stop hearing about her parents. She's like kind of given yeah. up yeah. on that. She's like very focused on Miss Honey's problems and solving those. And so I think she, um, like feels a little bit better about her situation. She's like, well, at least I have this and this and like mm-hmm. my parents aren't dead. So, I, I mean, I think, I think the, the relationship serves both parties, which is really nice. Right. Yeah. For those of you in the real world who are listening, if anything about Miss Honey's situation resonates with you, particularly if you have overcome it and or are in the process of currently overcoming it, Remember the words of Dahl through Matilda, quote, what a marvelously brave thing Miss Honey had done. Suddenly she was a heroine in Matilda's eyes. And that is for getting out of a bad situation. And even though she was living in poverty, living in poverty on her terms. And like, and so if any of you are dealing with those darker realities, like wands up, our hearts are are full for you. And anything further, guys, before we kick it to some real life heroes? No, we're good. Yeah. So now that we've given you, hopefully, a deeper insight on the historical implications of Miss Honey's situation, we wanted to give a moment to shout out some real life heroes and share with you some submissions from teachers who are in real time helping lift wands up and share and grow kindness in the real world. I'm so excited about this first one. This is a submission from an amazing educator, friend of the pod, uh, just beautiful, beautiful soul, Los Angeles teacher, fellow Southern Californian, Connie Lau. (laughs) Get away, Connie. 
Hi y'all. So my name's Connie and I work at a small public charter high school in Los Angeles. So it's been a rough transition, right? Moving to distance learning. I work at a Title I school and a lot of my students have limited access to technology. And many of them, especially my female students, are taking on additional household responsibilities, right? Like cooking, taking care of the younger siblings. And not to mention access to space. Um, many of my students live with four to five other family members in small apartments and houses. That sucks, right? The lack of privacy. And as a teenager, cope up in a small environment. I think schools in general need to reimagine what they're like in the fall and in years to come to address this, right? This change of family relationships, positive or negative, to address the trauma that we're all going in this moment of time, to help and support our students as humans and not just learners, not mere testing the scores and GPAs. How do we support our students in wellness? In social emotional learning, how can that be, be a priority for once, right? Especially at the secondary level and not just something tackled on. Anyways, I can go on and on about that, but I also wanted to highlight some positives during this times of COVID-19. Um, I've been doing weekly check-ins with my students through Google Forms, and here are some fun answers I've received. I asked them in light of my recent birthday, what are 30 things I should do in my 30s? And some of my favorites are eating 30 chicken nuggets in one sitting, starting a 401k, investing. Um, Y'all, these are 14-year-olds, so <laughs> that was pretty fun. Um, taming a dragon and going on a magical quest. And then like 60 of them said I should go skydiving, while one said I should do it before my back and knees hurt. And I'm like, too late, kid. Um, and one last thing I want to highlight, collective of the teachers at my school have been organizer and mutual aid at my school. Um, our school cannot directly help because of charter restrictions. And so the 10 of us are doing what we can to urgently respond to lack of infrastructure especially by our government, to help our most vulnerable families, right? Especially our families who are undocumented and who don't have access to government aid. Over the last month, we have given out almost $16,000 in funds to 144 families. 144 families and 111 of them have been unique. It's been quite an overtaking, um, and I'm so grateful to everyone's generosity so far. And we're doing one last round. And if folks can contribute to it, um, that'd be very much appreciated. Um, it's a GoFundMe. Is that www.tinyurl.com that's t-i-n-y-u-r-l um, slash e-c-h-s covid fund thank you and thank you for having me the collections for the gofundme run until the 26th though connie has let us know that any leftovers will be given to a mutual aid in los angeles we'll be sure to post the link along with an article featuring the drive on our social media so look out for that and thanks connie for doing that Awesome. Yeah, awesome, Connie, awesome. you're amazing. Way to crush it. Bring students first all the time. Yep. And next, we have uh, another friend of the pod, Drew Medine, and he shares uh, the following. He says, I had a student that started with me when he was about seven or eight. His parents told me he would get so nervous about performing in his school's yearly musical that he would break down during the show and run off the stage crying. They said that they wanted him to perform in the upcoming show and thought that I would be able to help him learn not to be scared of being in front of people. I began teaching him a guitar, inviting him and his family to shows so he could see me playing live and generally talking him through some strategies to calm himself down anytime he started feeling anxious about people watching him play. About three quarters of the way through the semester, his parents asked me if I would attend the musical and go stand up on stage next to him singing in the chorus. <laughs> I said yes, because who doesn't want to be the only giant performing in a choir of tiny people? We rehearsed and performed. We even got a little solo section where we both got to play guitar for everybody. He didn't panic at all. He actually said he had fun. After that, he was all in for performing. He really dedicated himself to his guitar playing and it's been about seven years since then. He still takes lessons with me weekly and plays on his church's worship team. Good job, Drew. Wonderful. You rock. Yep. Uh, that's just awesome. So cute. <laughs> uh, all right. Last but not least is Justin Hubbard's story. And he shared with us that they had a, quote, school-wide Kahoot. Which is great. Which, side note. If you don't know what Kahoot is ask a student because it's it's a big thing for distance learning and just school overall. <laughs> so quote, they had a school-wide Kahoot last week, not a ton of participation for the first time, but we had a lot of fun and I bought the winning student a pizza. His mom emailed me a picture and said that he was having a bad week and that it really helped. And I just think it's so lovely, Justin, because it's like really the small things that help so much. And I love it. And I'm going to put you on a vocab moment, like Ooh. pressure point 
what do you mean there's this specific meaning for kahoot? Because I was thinking like you meant like a, a hoot nanny, like a kahoot, a, a, a party. Like that's that what I thought. That is hilarious. You are so, is so this, funny right now. This reminds me very much then of the moment where like people thought Argus Filch like actually kicked students over the pond Hunting them, yeah, yeah, because yeah, he hunted yeah, yeah. them instead of boating <laughs> them over. So, like, what does kahoot mean? Because I assume it still means a party. Yeah, it does. Uh, but in this case, okay. it's like an educational party, <laughs> aren't they all? <laughs> yeah, well, all of mine are. Uh, kahoot is an app, uh, a website as well. I don't personally use kahoot. My students are a little bit young, and I think it requires more devices than what we have. Okay, uh, but I know oh. that a lot of teachers will do assessments on kahoot, where students will just like. I don't know if you guys had these in college, but like those eye clickers. No, okay. we did not no. participate in who wants to be a millionaire in college. No. Okay. Yeah, no I didn't Shout do that out either. to all my UCSB gauchos with eye clickers <laughs> circa 2009 to 2012. Holy crap. I'm old. Yeah. <laughs> I graduated from college in 2011. So um, we had eye clickers and basically the teacher would like put up a quiz or like a, a a multiple choice question on the screen and then with your eye clicker you would vote that's basically what kahoot is it also has like flashcards and study models and oh. um well like lesson plan things that students can work through so a lot of teachers are using kahoot right now um, and it's cool pretty engaging i don't personally use it mostly because my students can't read that well <laughs> sure sure that's fair well there you go well now that we've had a kahoot on that unexpected additional both have moment Let's turn our analytical eyes back towards the big bad in this fiction, presumed murderer and will tamperer, Agatha Trunchbull. So like to wrap up this chapter, which we've kind of been dancing around, is the penultimate reveal in this childhood tale that the unnamed aunt that is haunting Miss Honey from her youth is the same person that is haunting Crunchum Halls, and that is Agatha Trunchbull. Not only is it the same horror villain, it is presumed possibly by Miss Honey, although she can't confirm it, that Aggie Dearest killed her daddy-o and completely tore up the right will and wrote a whole fake one to steal everything that Miss Honey was supposed to inherit from her family mm -hmm. them's them's the breakdowns i'm not a lawyer but i'm pretty sure correct me if i'm wrong will sarah that's illegal yeah yeah just that's a little illegal. bit yeah. <laughs> okay yeah. i'm just I mean, making sure i'm just making sure the murder part as well as the will of art forging part oh definitely. both yeah both yes. okay got it okay kind I'll of a double yes. me. yeah <laughs> and there's there's also something called a dead man statue yeah which in like Daenerys Targaryen fashion, I go, okay, so then it doesn't apply to women. I got you. <laughs> but yeah, like not to not to get too far into the weeds here, but like in case you were wondering, no, you can't just rip up somebody's will. Yes, it actually does happen. Families are bizarre. Will class and family law class are some of the wildest stories. Yes, they are. And yes, they're all true. Yes. And and <laughs> And so, and what also makes it wild is different states, of course, just like with a lot of different things, have different rules when it comes to making wills, changing wills, da 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 da. Yeah, what da, happens da, da. where there's no will, all this good stuff. Yeah. yeah and so this is going to be like a weird thing to include as we're like breaking down a child's story, especially because like I haven't followed this advice yet, but like write a will before you die because like you don't know what your state's laws are and you might have your stuff going somewhere you don't want it to that's the long and short of wills and don't tell whoever the agatha trunchbull in your family is where your will is yeah. hopefully there isn't one but you know you never know yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I like that musical interlude by the way sarah can we like can we can we start a thing where you uh teach law through through song for like a passing That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. worth it I, yeah yeah i put a lot of time into like trust and wills because i feel like like virginia has like 22 different bar subjects and like if, if like they told us very early on like you're gonna get a wills questions know your wills and trusts and have i applied it since then until today no not really 
Yeah, except for right here and right now. Except for right here, right now. Exactly. Yeah. Well, just like with Wills, names are important. And so I think this is a fantastic time for us to turn our eyes at one of the teensiest chapters I've ever seen in a longer, quote-unquote, kids, young adult book, and that is chapter 18, The Names. So I want to kind of shake things up for this chapter's detailed dorky dive a bit and get into that philosophical discussion I kept alluding to. And like, let me explain a little bit. This chapter is literally three pages long. And if you're wanting to get technically about it, it spans four pages because of an illustration. But this is a teensy weensy yellow polka dot bikini of a chapter. And I posit that it really sheds light into two characters' thought processes. processes. And I want to discuss what I'm calling the quote unquote murkier one with both of you. And first, obviously, the glaring one here is Matilda. Matilda's thought process can be summarized as follows. She's super surprised by the truth of Miss Honey's personal life. Check. We covered it. She wants to go home immediately to, quote, think and think about all the things, end quote, that she heard. And she does understand the need for tempered strategizing. Check. As far as we're concerned, that's all we need to really cover because we yet don't know, pages still need to turn, what she plans on doing with this information. And what information are we talking about here? Matilda says she needs three names. First, the name that Miss Trunchbull called Miss Honey's father around the house at home, the answer to which is Magnus. Great name. Such a good name. And second, the name that Magnus called Miss Trunchbull the answer, which was Agatha. And remind us, Flo, what was that name meaning again? Means? Yeah. It means good. Yeah. Derived from the Greek, Agathos, yeah. meaning good. Saint Agatha was a third century martyr from Sicily who was tortured and killed, in case you were wondering. Oh, Delightful. Okay. That was a little, and, little Mermaid moment. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Spoilers. That's right. And Magnus, I think, means emperor in it Latin. sounds right. Or king. Yeah. Uh, let's find out. It means great. So there was good and great. great. Oh, wow. there we go. Their yes. parents were uh, interesting. That is interesting. <laughs> See, look at this. Look at this. These little chestnuts. Okay, good and great. And then third and finally, what is that last name we care about? Oh, thirdly, very important. The name that both Magnus and Agatha called Miss Honey, the answer, Jenny. And like I said, why she needs those names, we're not sure about, but this chapter sheds light not just into what we will soon discover to be Matilda's planning and plotting and machinations, but also onto Miss Honey's thought process regarding why she may be giving this information to Matilda. And so like, again, caveat, 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 this is a story, right? But like caveat, 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 we can learn things from stories. And Miss Honey says to this little tiny six-year-old, quote, you had better forget everything I told you this afternoon and agrees with Matilda. It would be wise not to talk about it with anyone, including Miss Honey herself. And on top of that, once we see Matilda's mind begin to work, apparently on how to solve Miss Honey's personal problems, we see because Doll gives us this omnipresent vantage point, Miss Honey privately think to herself mm -hmm. and notably smile, quote, it was extraordinary how this snippet of a girl seemed suddenly to be taking charge of her problems and with such authority too, end quote. And yes, she tells Matilda to not do anything silly before this chapter closes out. But in my humble opinion, that's like telling a contradiction not to contrast diction. So we reach the real question. Flo and Will, we don't get any adjectives to describe how Miss Honey is communicating. And I like here, of course, want to insert a joke about British authors and their use or lack thereof of adjectives. <laughs> but like, what's your adjective take? Because pre-BGS with you folks, Miss Honey was 
truly I took the like idealized virginal blissful wonderful sweet honey teacher at like face value and older adult dorkier what does this mean turn everything over oh my goodness what did this teacher actually literally tell this child it's I can appreciate the two extremes and in between and just want to talk to people about it. So I've said Mm -hmm. my piece. Now I want to hear what you folks think. I think my adjective for how she's communicating would be desperate. Yeah. I Mm. think she's really desperate, A, to talk to somebody, to like unleash the secret out into the world. She's kept it for, you know, X number of years. Mm -hmm. Love it. And she's also desperate that Matilda not tell anybody because she's so fearful of the Trunchbull and, you know, the power that she still wields over her life. I mean, Mm -hmm. she's not only her her aunt, she's also her boss. She's around. She's like a figure in town. She's important. And so Mm -hmm. um, I think she's just desperate to stay safe in a lot of ways. I, and I think I agree. Go go ahead, William. Yeah, and I think that's a great point that that there is kind of this, this especially when you think about how lonely Miss Honey must have been mm-hmm. and not told anybody about all this. But at the same time, there might be a little bit of recognition of herself too, in that Miss Honey exercised a little bit of agency and was able to free herself, or at least you know, to live in the woods. And there might be a little bit of recognition that it's like, oh, Matilda's like me but mm-hmm. she can move things with her mind and she might just do something about it. Wow. That's kind of wild. So I'll let her in. Um, and that may be going to your point, Sarah, about kind of the innocent Miss Honey, as well as what you might read now in, in terms of maybe a little more calculating, maybe a little more hopeful. I don't know. The other, the other thought that I had about this was that it reminds me a little bit of um, Hagrid from Harry Potter. Yes. And how constantly, especially in the early books, he's like, oh, I shouldn't have told you that. Yes. Right? Bingo. Like, oh, bingo. I shouldn't have let you in on all this stuff that is going to animate you for the next like X chapters to the end of this book. Yes. And w- with Hagrid, you know, yeah, we're confident, especially in early read throughs that he's maybe kind of bumbling and, you know, not um not calculating but it's kind of fun to wonder like if he's letting them in on purpose right and hagrid's another lonely character who lives in a cottage Mm -hmm. yeah and i guess i guess i'll just say as like a teaser i guess you'll just have to wait until we stop alluding to harry potter and actually cover harry potter that's because like man we're ready i have a few little takes that like i want to get into now but i can't so anyway (laughs) I love those different readings because I I think that there is a lot of desperation. I think that there is, as as I think you had said, flow self-doubt involved in revealing this truth. And and I love that more whimsical, lighthearted perspective, Will, that you draw in. It's again that same uniting factor. I, I think again this this tug and pull between the what liminal the liminal journey that that mm-hmm. we're making right between when does someone who has certain intellectual capabilities become intellectually mature enough whether it's from an emotional acu- acuity from a age maturation standpoint etc 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 when on one's journey can someone make those kind of choices? And then what do those choices have on other people going through their own personal journeys? Like, I don't blame Miss Honey for what she is doing. I do think, like Flo said, that she's desperate. I just, it makes me incredibly sad that this young teacher, after all that she has gone through, has found... Maybe not for the first time, but at least for the first time we readers are privy to reached out to someone who she thinks maybe has the power to either do something or at least the power to listen. And and Mm -hmm. that resonates with me. And the listening part's a really good point, too, because we, we, we heard earlier in the chapter or maybe the previous chapter about how mature Matilda was in listening to Miss Honey's story, right? Yes. And that she wasn't judgmental. She just kind of took it in and, and drew her own conclusions, but did it wasn't rude about anything. And, and she was a very mature listener. Um, so that's really interesting too. Well, 
What was that one thing you had mentioned earlier in the episode? I think you had asked people to give us their thoughts on. Do either of you two remember? Yeah. Because it's time to mm-hmm. time to close out the episode, and I'd love us to to leave with that precious thought to think on. Yeah. So I really liked both of your takes on it, but I, I think it's it would be cool to pose to the readers. Um, you know, what do you guys think in in Roald Dahl's description of Miss Honey's cottage? And how he portrays Miss Honey in her in her space is it is it overly romanticizing the poverty? Uh, is it romanticizing the poverty? Period. Does he do it well? Does he is 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 he falling into any traps here? So we'd love to hear from you. Yep, yep. And it and it can go even as far as broad as what I would call the journey to knowledge mm-hmm. knowledge that certain people may be protected from, but may be revealed like a delicious red apple hidden in the woods in a tiny, tiny little cottage. So yeah, reach out to us with those thoughts if you are so inclined. But what should they do if they want to reach out to us flow in other ways on other things, not just that one thought to think on? (laughs) Well, we will make sure to post that thought to think on on our social media. But until that happens, you can share some of your favorite Matilda moments, quotes, questions, and answers on Instagram at Bohemian Geek Studies, on Twitter at Geek Studies, and by emailing us your favorite magical books at bohemiangeekstudies at gmail.com or anything else you want to tell us. Just email us. We need friends, just like Miss Honey. And you might be possibly featured in a future episode. Yeah. So until next time, folks, keep those wands up and keep those pages turning. <laughs> <laughs>